This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We will hear argument this morning in case 19840, California versus Texas. In the most high stakes case of the term, the justices considered the fate of the Affordable Care Act, the landmark law better known as Obamacare that provides health insurance to 20 million people. From the oral arguments, it appeared that the law would survive the challenge, but the question was how, on what grounds. First, the justices have to decide whether the challengers even have a legal right to sue, called standing. And Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh pose several hypotheticals to determine this. Let's say Congress uh, passes a law saying everybody has to mow their lawn once a week. Uh, And they even make a lot of findings about why that's a good thing. You know, it makes the country look neater. You get fresh air if you have to do that. Supports the lawnmower business. Um, and uh, But the fine for violating it is zero, zero dollars. Um, do they have standing? I assume that in most places there is no penalty for wearing a uh, face mask or a mask during COVID. Um, but there is some degree of opprobrium if one does not wear it in certain settings. Suppose Congress passed a law requiring every American who lives in a house to fly an American flag in front of the house. Uh, There's no penalty. My guest is Abby Gluck, a professor at Yale Law School and the founding faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. Abby, let's start with the basics. Why is Obamacare before the Supreme Court again? So this is actually the seventh time the Affordable Care Act has been in the Supreme Court in eight years. And it is the third time the Affordable Care Act has faced what we call an existential challenge, a challenge to its entire being. And the reason the case is here is that Congress in 2017 decided after 70 failed attempts to repeal and replace the law that it was able to do one thing, one symbolic thing, and that is zero out the penalty associated with the insurance purchase requirements, the infamous mandate, the insurance mandate. This, as you might remember, had been the focal point of the first litigation, long been held up there as a symbol of what anti-affordable care folks really don't like. So Congress zeroes out the penalty, the mandate is no longer enforceable, and in the real world, that really has relatively little effect. And the reason there's relatively little effect is that the mandate had never really been fully enforced. The markets had acclimated to the mandate not existing. Uh, and so by the time the mandate is actually zeroed out, the effect on the markets is relatively little. So how did we get to the court? Well, 18 red states and the Department of Justice took that argument one step further and said, look, now the mandate is no longer constitutional. The reason the mandate is no longer constitutional is that the Supreme Court in an earlier case in 2012, NFIB versus Abelius, upheld the mandate as a tax with a penalty of zero. They argued it can't be a tax. Still, relatively insignificant given that the mandate was not really enforced. However, they went even further than that and argued that the entire Affordable Care Act was so inextricably tied to the mandate that the whole 2002 law had to go down with it. And they went even further and said, Congress told the court as much. Congress has effectively instructed the court to strike the entire statute down, even after Congress decided not to strike the statute down. So it's kind of a preposterous set of facts that brought us to where we are. So the first question was whether the challengers here have standing to sue, and we heard all kinds of hypotheticals from the justices about mowing the lawn, wearing a mask, flying the flag. What were they getting at? Yeah, so I think it was a really interesting start to the oral argument. Um, 
we had all the justices in our first line of question were asking these standing questions. And so while everyone was sort of listening in, waiting to get to the consequential question of will the ACA survive, uh, the court took the entire time for the California Solicitor General to spend on the threshold question of standing. So why is that important? First of all, standing is a threshold question. If the parties aren't injured, sufficient to bring the case, the case goes away. So it's important that the court spends time on that. Second, you've got to remember that these standing issues are important to the court beyond the context of the Affordable Care Act. Whatever happens with the Affordable Care Act this year um, may well be tied just to the Affordable Care Act. Of course, if they reaffirm the presumption of severability, that's very important. But there are important standing issues about the ability of states to bring cases and, the, and what kind of injury individuals need to bring cases. And the court cares about those issues a lot in the long term. So it was not surprising to see the justices uh, focusing on that for the first round of questions. So what was the meaning of all those questions? You're right. There were a lot of interesting hypotheticals. What if there's a requirement that you wear a mask, but it's, there's no penalty to enforce it? What if there's a requirement that everybody mows their lawns and there's no penalty to enforce it? And so on. And what they were trying to get at was the question of um, whether uh, you could be sufficiently injured by failing to obey a requirement that doesn't have an enforcement provision. So an example that the Chief Justice gave was uh, if you decided, if you were then asked, have you ever broken a law on an employment form and you decided, say, not to mow your lawn, um, would you have to check the box to say, yes, I broke the law or not? And they were trying to use those hypotheticals to get at the question about whether an unenforceable requirement, which is how the justices were describing it for those hypotheticals, would be sufficient to hook injury onto for purposes of standing. Knowing that you can't definitively tell from the justices' questions, do you think that there are enough votes to say that there is standing and they can go to the merits question? So I think that we don't know how the court is going to rule on standing. There were so many different questions going in so many different areas that it's very hard to tell. If I were a betting person, uh, I would bet slightly, although I never bet on the court, to say that the court will get to the merits question because there did seem to be enough justices that were interested uh, in getting to the merits question and, in fact, in, as we'll talk about, in upholding the Affordable Care Act. But there is one pretty significant piece of the standing argument, um, which I think is relatively important. And it's just the argument that the Department of Justice is making, in which it was effectively trying to bootstrap standing by using the entire Affordable Care Act to challenge one particular provision. So basically, the DOJ argument is because some of the plaintiffs were harmed by some provisions in the Affordable Care Act, they can then argue that because all of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act are tied together, that they're inseparable, that allows them to get into court to argue that the mandate is unconstitutional, and therefore, all the provisions, including the one that offends them, will be struck down. And Justice Sotomayor says, well, if that's really your argument, shouldn't they have just challenged the provision that they don't like? Why are they trying to come into court through the back door? of arguing the whole statute is inextricably tied together, so I can therefore challenge anything I want right, to bring the whole statute down. So Justice Sotomayor sort of called them on that. I think Justice Thomas was very, very worried about this idea of thinking about the statute as inseparable 
as a single coherent unit that can't be broken apart for purposes of the standing inquiry, because you saw how that could just open up and explode this idea of Article 3 standing would make it very easy for litigants to get into court to challenge things by bootstrapping arguments onto different provisions that had no harmful effect on them whatsoever. When the justices turned to considering the merits of the case and whether the individual mandate is still constitutional after Congress zeroed out the penalty, Chief Justice John Roberts questioned former Solicitor General Donald Verrilli, who now represents the House, about his apparent change of position since the arguments in 2012. But now the representation uh, is that, oh, no, everything's fine without it. Uh, uh, why, why the bait and switch? And was, was Congress wrong when it said uh, that the mandate was the key to the whole thing, that, that we spent, um, spent all that time talking about broccoli for nothing? Justice Stephen Breyer pointed to many laws that tell the public to do things without any enforcement provisions, and he pressed the Texas Solicitor General to explain why those statutes aren't now open to challenge. World War I, defense statutes, buy war bonds, an environmental statute, plant a tree, a one of a thousand statutes commemorating something, beautiful city's day, clean up the yard. Are all those statutes suddenly open to challenge? I've been talking to Abby Gluck, a professor at Yale Law School. Abby, where do you think the justices stood on the constitutionality of the individual mandate? What's interesting about the discussion on the mandate is that, again, this is one area in which I don't think we can predict uh, if the mandate itself will survive. Uh, As I said before, I do think it's more likely than not that the rest of the Affordable Care Act will survive, and that's the consequential question in the case, because as I said earlier, the mandate has not been fully enforced. So whether or not it survives has relatively little practical significance. But the oral argument was basically a debate about different kinds of scenarios. One scenario is, could this possibly still be a tax? There's a really interesting set of questions um, that, you know, rotated among Gorsuch, and Alito, uh, and Justice Sotomayor, among others, where they were exploring the idea of whether a tax with a number of zero on it could still be a tax. And Justice Sotomayor gave some really helpful examples. For instance, she asked the lawyers, well, what if Congress set a tax and then phased it out down to zero over a course of years? Would that still be a tax? What if Congress enacted a tax and gave it a delayed beginning and set it at zero for the first few years and then raised the level over time? Would that still be a tax? And the attorneys for the challenger said yes. So she pressed and said, how is this different? How is sort of a tax in waiting, a tax temporarily set at zero, not a tax for purposes of its constitutional authority? So that was one set of questions. Then there was another set of questions that sort of hinted at the idea that maybe this is no longer a tax at all, and that would make it invalid, because then nothing could justify it except for the Commerce Clause. And the court already held in 2012 that the mandate was not a valid exercise of Congress's commerce power. Justice Barrett was very interested in that argument. And then, you know, throughout, there was this other, this other set of arguments about, you know, how to conceptualize this at all. Maybe it's not a tax, maybe it's a mandate, Maybe it's something different entirely. Maybe it's just a precatory requirement. As former Solicitor General really said, you know, it's not operative, right? So that's the language that the blue states and the House are using. This is not a requirement. It's not a command. And even if you don't see it as a tax, 
It's nothing operative. It has no effect. It can't harm anybody. And so those are the kind of different scenarios that the court was moving among, and it was trying to figure out how it was going to characterize what we call the mandate, which the court construed as a tax. What did you make of Justice Roberts asking Verrilli why the bait and switch? And we've been talking about broccoli all this time for nothing. Yeah, that was a great exchange. So the argument opens up with the California Solicitor General. Somewhat surprisingly, they used up all of his time on the standing issues. So when they get to Mr. Verrilli, who is representing the House, they suddenly are ready to turn to the middle. So they kind of have to clear the air. And the reason they have to clear the air is that Verrilli was Barack Obama's Solicitor General. He defended the Affordable Care Act in 2012 and 2015 in the Supreme Court. And back in 2012, he actually argued that the mandate was so essential to the operation of a few of the insurance provisions in the Affordable Care Act that if the mandate was struck down, he suggested the court to strike down a few of those insurance provisions as well. So Roberts comes in and says, we had this whole debate in 2012, and you argued here about the mandate's essentiality, that was a broccoli debate, and now you're back saying it doesn't matter. So explain yourself. And that was really important because it gave really an opportunity to both bring us into the present to move us back from the 2010-2012 exchange, which is really no longer legally relevant, and also to explain why its litigating positions have switched. And what really said was, well, back then, it seemed to Congress that it needed, in his words, both carrots and sticks to get the Affordable Care Act markets working effectively. The mandate was the stick. And he said, over time, it became clear that actually, you don't need the stick. The carrots are working just fine. And so he said, the 2017 Congress, enlightened by these intervening years, informed by data, including a CBO report, made this decision that the stick was no longer necessary. So what once was thought to be important is not important anymore, and that's why it's appropriate to sever. And what's really interesting about that is we had another great analogy later in the argument by Justice Alito, who says, you know, once upon a time, there was a piece that was really essential to flying the plane, and now that piece has been taken out, and the plane hasn't crashed, right? That's another way of sort of explaining the change of events that happens over time. And of course, it's the case that Congress is allowed to alter statutes as circumstances change. And that's exactly what happened in this case. At one point, Justice Breyer seemed almost exasperated with the Texas Solicitor General when he was questioning him about other laws that, like Obamacare, don't have a mechanism for enforcement. Explain Breyer's concern. Throughout the argument, there was this repeated line of question about so-called precatory laws, laws that require, that sort of ask people to do something but don't have an enforcement mechanism. So Justice Breyer kept giving examples of many laws he remembered from his time in the Senate. He referred to his time in the Senate and said, we had laws declaring XYZ a commemorative day, building this post office, all sorts of laws that sort of urge, uh, but don't have a penalty, don't have a tax associated with it. And Breyer looked at the Solicitor General and said, are you telling me that all of those hundreds of laws that I remember across the U.S. Code that ask people to do things that don't have an enforcement mechanism, are all of those invalid? Because that's the theory they were forwarding here with respect to the mandate. And he got very frustrated because he took the Texas Solicitor General and the Department of Justice to be making the claim that they had somehow perused the entire U.S. Code. 
and searched for provisions like this and found that none of them used the shall language that the mandate uses. That the mandate was really a command. And Breyer pressed them and said, have you actually read every statute in the U.S. Code? Are you absolutely sure? I didn't remember it that way from my time in Congress. And I remember writing a lot of those laws that don't have an enforcement mechanism. And in the end, the lawyers sort of stepped back and said, no, Justice. We haven't read every single law in the U.S. Code. So, you know, I bet Justice Breyer's law clerks are going to be very busy this weekend <laughs> combing the U.S. Code. I'm serious for these examples because what the challenger's lawyers wound up sort of digging their feet into was this idea that only the Affordable Care Act provision uses the word shall, right? Breyer said, you know, are you sure, right? Do you, are you absolutely sure? And then they started having discussions about, is it shall? Is it should? Does it make a difference? So I think Justice Breyer is informed by his knowledge of the U.S. Code, his knowledge of the statutory landscape, and this kind of mechanism seemed familiar to him. Didn't seem that unusual for Congress to put in a provision that has no enforcement mechanism. Um, he was really pressing Texas and the Department of Justice about that. And now we come to the third part of the analysis and what I think is the headline about the arguments, which is that two conservative justices, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, seem to indicate in no uncertain terms that the mandate could be severed from the rest of the law and Obamacare will survive. Here's Justice Kavanaugh. I tend to agree with you on that this is a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would excise the mandate and leave the rest of the act in place. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right that that is the headline. You know, as I've been saying throughout this conversation, um, you know, the standing issues are very important in general, uh, as the court defined as standing jurisprudence. Uh, It's very important for the court to resolve this threshold question about whether litigants can take these 2,000-page laws, find something offensive, uh, and use an inseparability argument to create standing where there is none, that's important. Uh, the second tier question of whether the mandate is unconstitutional, you know, that's important to some extent, but we've already had that discussion in NFIB. We already know where most of the court is on the Commerce Clause, and the mandate's operation on the ground is not that significant. But the significant question, obviously, is what happens to the rest of the law? That's the question that affects 20 million people who will be thrown off the rolls, the 100 million people who have pre-existing conditions, all the billions of dollars in Medicare and Medicaid and so on, and really one fifth of the economy, the healthcare system. So that's the big question. And to that question, and this is why you're right, that is the headline, uh, it does look like the Affordable Care Act is likely to survive. Um, you know, we didn't hear too much from the three liberal justices specifically about severability, um, but we did hear quite a bit from Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts. Both justices realigned themselves with a strong presumption of severability. Justice Roberts said he would find it hard to believe that the court should strike down the entire Affordable Care Act when Congress itself, after 70 failed attempts to repeal and replace, decided only to zero out that one provision and leave the rest of the law intact. And Chief Justice Roberts said, given that Congress did that, given that Congress left the rest of the law intact, he said, it's not our job, right, to strike it down. So that was really interesting. Um, Justice Kavanaugh said more than once that he thought the severability argument was very strong here. He sort of laid his cards on the table. And both Kavanaugh and Roberts 
um, were very skeptical of this argument made by Texas and the Department of Justice that Congress somehow dictated to the court in the Affordable Care Act that come what may, it should strike down the Affordable Care Act no matter what, it's a mandate is struck down. And that argument is based on statutory findings from the 2010 version of the law that were inserted into the law to justify Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. As you know, the court rejected Congress's Commerce Clause justification, but the language from those findings, which talked about the mandate's importance to the markets, is what the challenger seized on. Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts really weren't having any of that. They said, you know what? I know what an inseparability clause looks like. The U.S. Code has plenty of examples, and that's not what this looks like. When Congress wants to write an inseparability clause, it knows how to do that. And I think those were very important moments in the oral argument for the Affordable Care Act. I don't really know where Barrett, Thomas, or such oral leaders are on severability. It is interesting that Justice Thomas, who in some past cases has uh, indicated desire to reshape the severability doctrine, just kept saying severability is a question of statutory interpretation. He didn't seem to resist the notion of severability in general. Then we had that analogy from Justice Alito saying, well, we thought the mandate was so important, but we've taken it out of the plane of still flying. That sounds kind of like a severability argument to me. Um, and then we really didn't hear anything from Gorsuch or Barrett one way or the other about how they might rule on severability if they do ever get to that question. Abby, let me ask you this question. Why do you think that the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh so plainly laid their cards on the table, as you say, to say that, you know, basically we're going to vote that this is severable? Well, you know, I, I've written this before, and I think you and I have discussed this before as well. You know, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh just wrote opinions last term on severability, right? Each of them authored important opinions, strongly reaffirming the presumption in favor of severability. Both of them used the same analogy in those opinions. That's um, Celia Law and the American Political Consultants case. Both of them used the same analogy, comparing severability to surgical severance rather than wholesale destruction, a scalpel rather than a bulldozer. Both of them were sort of in tandem last spring, reaffirming that doctrine. And it's very, very hard for me to believe that in writing those cases, they didn't have the Affordable Care Act somewhere in the back of their mind. They knew the case was coming. They knew severability uh, was going to be important. Justice Kavanaugh wrote about severability in a law review article before he was on the Supreme Court, talking about the importance of the strong presumption. So I think it would have been actually very strange if neither of them had mentioned the presumption in favorability or kind of aligned themselves with it, because it would have looked like they were departing from this rule, like a settled rule, that each of them just reaffirmed a few months ago, somehow for political reasons, through the Affordable Care Act. So I wasn't really surprised. Um, but it was refreshing to see them, you know, be rather upfront about it. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Abby. That's Professor Abby Gluck of Yale Law School, the faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. The Supreme Court will issue its decision in the Obamacare case by June. With health care accounting for a sixth of the U.S. economy, the stakes are massive. 
And the challenge jeopardizes the health care of more than 135 million Americans with pre-existing conditions, including those who have had COVID-19, according to the Center for American Progress. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. You can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.